I'm not governed by the fear of what other people say. You've got to open your heart. Well, number one, he's one of the elite offensive players in the game. What is leadership like in today's football world? Hey everyone and welcome to Not Another Philly Sports Talk Show. It's Mike Sealski from the Philadelphia Inquirer joined this week by our ever intrepid producer Jonathan Tannenwald. David Murphy from the Daily News is on vacation. Do we know where he's on vacation? Uh, Bora Bora, I okay. think, or Conshohocken, one of the okay. two. All right. um, so there's a lot that's happened this week, um, not necessarily in Philadelphia sports, but a lot that touches on some themes and topics that we've dealt with. We're going to have Mike Jensen from the Inquirer on later in the show, uh, an expert in college basketball, an expert in the NBA. Um, we're going to talk about an, Ben Simmons. An expert on the Sixers' latest signing as Ex- we were about to record this. Exactly, yeah. As Within the hour as we're recording this, the Sixers have signed uh, Gerald Henderson, uh, former Episcopal, not former, Episcopal Academy alumnus, um, to a two-year contract, a good solid signing, I think. Um, they're going about making their entire roster a bit more professional, I think, and um, so we can get into that with Mike. We'll get into Ben Simmons and his debut sun, uh, Monday night in the Summer League and cramps and all that kind of stuff. We're certainly going to get into Kevin Durant signing with the Warriors and what it means about the pa- balance of power in the NBA. Um, we're also going to get into with Mike um, the five-part series uh, by former Inquirer sports columnist Bill Lyon that's been running uh, both on Philly.com and in the paper about his battle with Alzheimer's disease. Um, Mike's known Bill uh, for a long, long time, worked with him for a long time. Um, so we'll get into that as well. But to start, John, I think, do you want to go Duran or Simmons? I think Simmons probably more interesting locally. Sure. Okay. Yeah, we'll start with Simmons. So keep s- the audience for a few minutes. Yeah, exactly. So he falls over, he gets cramps in his legs and everybody freaks out. Yeah. I, you know, <laughs> short of like flesh eating bacteria attacking his lower legs. Um, it was pretty obvious that there was going to be cramps and it was pretty obvious that, that people were going to freak out about it. But you know, I thought he looked pretty good for a guy who hadn't played ball in a long time. He only shot, what, two for nine, I guess, which is not all that surprising. He's not a great outside shooter. But, boy, you could see what the Sixers hope to get out of him. Some of the passing ability, the ball handling ability, um, the, the, the team-oriented play. He had the one... Uh the pass through a couple of Celtics defenders that was two thirds of the floor. Yeah, like it was like, oh, okay, like he's thinking and playing on a different plane at, at times yeah. um, from the other guys on the floor. So all that was encouraging. Um, you know, then you get the cramps and he'll sit out Tuesday night's game. Uh, you know, trade him immediately. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> trade him now <laughs> while his value is the highest. Um, but you know, I think all in all it was encouraging. And, yes, and, definitely. And all in all, you know, now you're starting to see. I think. The beginning of a more professional. I've been pleasantly surprised. I, I know I've kind of ragged on the Colangelos quite a bit, uh, but I've been pleasantly surprised with how they've gone about the free agent period. You know, they've just made the team more professional. They they signed Jared Bayless. They signed Gerald Henderson. Um, they signed uh, the Spanish point guard whose name is escaping me at this point. Yeah. Um, but they just get they're, they're getting guys. And they who haven't can, done anything stupid. Yeah, they, they're signing guys who can play in the league to reasonable contracts. Right. Um, they're not locking themselves into anything, um, and that's good. And you know, now that the next big thing, it presumably, is going to be the decision to either trade Nerlens Noel or Julio Okafor. But Sergio Rodriguez, by Sergio the Rodriguez. There you the go. Um, you know, look, like we've talked about before on this podcast, they could hardly be worse. The, the Sixers could hardly be worse than they were last year. So just about anything they did in this offseason uh, was going to make them better. They weren't going to win 10 games again just by virtue of getting the number one pick, probably getting Joel Embiid back, um, maybe getting Dario Saric to come over. So yeah. There's we'll one see. other thing that they did that I, I thought was interesting, and I suppose this depends on whether you believe all the reports that were out there or not, as to whether or not they put a bid on the table to Jamal Crawford to force the Clippers to spend more money. A, lo- a lot of what I've heard um, and seen from Colangelo so far is much the same things that Hinky was doing, but because somebody else is doing them, they're much better regarded. And I think part of the game that Hinky might not have been willing to play was to grease the skids with agents, with agents by sort of, I don't want to say faking a big, because I don't know right. if Crawford is ever going to come here, but play that game a little bit that maybe Hinky wasn't willing to. It's clear that the Sixers have, as you said, a more professional, more veteran-oriented lineup, but they didn't sign Rajon Rondo. Right, couple which is of, good. A couple of other guys who... You know, the 
I'm going to offend some people, but that's what we do on the show. The old school basketball heads mm-hmm. who see things in a certain way. Yeah. You know, look, they, they haven't done those things. And I've been pretty happy about that. Yeah, I, I agree. They've maintained roster flexibility, which no matter how much the salary cap might increase and it's going to skyrocket, you know, after this season and beyond, um, you still need that. Right. You know, just because you have more money to spend doesn't make you smart in spending it. Now, having said that, that I'm not saying that these players, it's bad that these players are getting all these contracts. Um, you know, there's been a lot of back and forth. We were talking about this before the show began, this kind of comparison that's come up between NBA players and the money they're getting and NFL players and the money they get, um, which it, it, on one level to me, I understand it, but it's on another level, it's completely ridiculous. Right. Like NBA players, you know, they're not putting their bodies on the line in the way that NFL players are. And there's not are. as many of them, and there's so on and so A, there's not as many of them. B, they're not, they're not accepting the same amount of risk. Teams are not accepting the same amount of risk in signing an NBA free agent that they are in signing an NFL free agent. Right. That's why Major League Baseball contracts are so expensive and so long, is because while the game is difficult to play because you play every single day, it's not the same as standing back there and having a defensive end maybe rip your head off or you know, having small car crashes on every single play because you're an offensive lineman or a defensive tackle. Um, it's not the same thing. It's, it's an apples and oranges comparison. And, and this, this is what I think, and, and I, this is actually might be part of what points to what the root of the problem is in the NFL. Rachel Nichols of, I guess, well, ESPN, ESPN now, right? She's back at ESPN, of, yes. Uh, tweeted a couple days ago, guys, ESPN and TNT just paid the NBA $24 billion. Either the owners keep nearly all of it or half goes to the players. This version is better. And I think she's right. Yeah, you know, the, the, I'll never understand that. We've talked about this on the show before. I'll never understand why fans... You know, this came up in the whole Sam Bradford thing that Han- Sam Bradford is selfish because he took 18, he's taking $18 million this year. And, you know, once the Eagles went out and trade, made all those trades to get the opportunity to draft Carson Wentz, Sam Bradford's being selfish because he's getting paid a lot. Like, $18 million is nothing to Jeffrey Lurie. He's a billionaire. His franchise is worth several billion dollars. And also to our colleagues in the press and so forth who have chastised Kevin Durant for going to Golden State and so on. Yes, like you wouldn't jump at the chance to, as some of them have done over yeah, the years. You know, I go, to go back, to ESPN I so go forth. back and forth about about that because I do understand the argument of, you know, do you want to you know, the the fact that LeBron beat and the Cavaliers beat the Warriors this year, uh, you know, became you know, it's this narrative that we create in sports. And it and it made it more emphasis on we create, by yeah. But it, it made it more palatable to people that he won this championship in that the Warriors were the better team during the regular season. They set the single season record for victories. Uh, and he comes along, and even though they're up three games to one, LeBron leads this great comeback with teammates who are, with the exception of Kyrie Irving, not as good as the teammates that Steph Curry has. Um, and so I am sympathetic to the idea that Kevin Durant should have stayed in Oklahoma City and had just come close to beating the Warriors there with the Thunder himself. And now he's kind of jumping on the bandwagon for the sake of getting a ring. And it's not going to be, it's going to be easier for him to get a ring with Curry and Clay Thompson and Andre Godala and whoever else is left on the team. But by the same token, go get a ring. Yeah, he'll get a ring. And, and to bring it back to our profession, for instance, like, you know, the, the Philadelphia Inquirer does not have the same journalistic resources as, say, the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times. So, you know, if I if if I'm a writer for the Inquirer and I want to go do a certain kind of work that requires a certain level of commitment and resources, I may not be able to do it here. I may have to go to the new. And that's nothing against the Inquirer right. or Philly.com. Right. You know, and if just, you're if it, you're a columnist who wants to bloviate on TV, then sometimes you leave the San Jose Mercury News for ESPN. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And that's okay. Like right. you know, if you want to do that now. Maybe maybe you think people shouldn't do that. Maybe you personally wouldn't want to do that, and that's fine. But, you know, people do it all the time, and it's okay. And it's, it, you know, it gets back to that whole decision about Sam, the, the whole thing about Sam Bradford. Like, I didn't understand why people were so angry with him for wanting to get to a better situation for him. Right. 
you know, it was he wanted to go somewhere else where he'd have a better chance to play longer as a starting quarterback. The points of professional sports are to play sports and get paid. Yeah, I, you know, and so I don't understand the, you know, if there's whatever anger is out there towards Durant, you know, as kind of embodied by Stephen A. Smith sort of questioning his manhood every hour on the hour on ESPN, <laughs> you know, I, I just don't get it. I think that come that's born more out of our desire for rivalries and yeah. drama in sports as opposed to just understanding, like, look, Kevin Durant, you know, maybe he sees the Warriors uh, as being an impediment to him winning a championship. And so, you know, or maybe he just rather would see what it's like to play with Steph Curry well, and Clay and, Thompson. And, right, and that that point brings me to something that, and I, it's interesting to me, I haven't seen, now granted, this has in part to do with the circle of people I follow on Twitter. I have not seen as much angst about Durant in Philadelphia as I have in, say, Boston, where they use Tom Brady to try to lure him. And then all the Celtics fans, led by Bill Simmons, of course, flipped out. And I had a lot of fun watching that. Right. But I haven't seen as much of that in Philadelphia. Perhaps they knew mm-hmm. he wasn't coming here, which is obvious. He was sure, never yeah. coming here. But I think about the Phillies in the late 2000s and a number of free agents who they signed, mm-hmm. independent of whether Ruben Amaro should have signed them. But we heard again and again, those guys wanted to play for a winner, so they wanted to come Cliff here. Lee. Yeah, yeah, Cliff Lee was the consummate example of that. Um, you know, Raul Ibanez was an example yes. of that. Jonathan Papelbon was an example of that. You're right. And it, it, what you're getting at is kind of the, it's the old steroid thing. Like, you know, I don't want anybody to do it. And I think it's terrible that those other guys on those other teams do it. But when the guys on my team do it, it's, oh, well, that's all right. As long as, you know, he just wants to win. Um, you know, we don't mind it if it's somebody else's ox being gored. Um I think that's true universally, but it's certainly, yeah, Philadelphia shouldn't shouldn't exempt itself from feeling that way, of course. Um, and I do think, uh, the, the one thing I'll say, though, I think that the more direct tie-in and, and the significance of Durant signing with the Warriors uh, vis-a-vis what the Sixers are doing in Philadelphia is I, I think it really drives home the point, and, you know, again, this is a topic we've batted around for a while. It drives home the the logic behind what the process and Sam Hinkie's plan were all about, which is this. Over the last 30 years in the NBA, maybe even longer than that, there have been 10 franchises that have won NBA championships. Think about that. That's incredibly few franchises that have won a championship. So if you're going to break into that, and, and that's liable to get fewer or even expand based solely on which superstars go where, right? We already saw the first iteration of this with the Miami Heat, this idea of three superstar players, LeBron James, Dwayne Wade, Chris Bosh, deciding to team up and go chase championships together. Now we're seeing the second iteration of that in in Durant and Curry and Thompson. Uh, And this club might even be better than those Heat teams. So they go in as the prohibitive favorite to win the NBA championship next year. I just saw, you know, Bavada's, the, right. the, the line-making companies, got their over-under at victories at, at 67.5, which is incredible when you think about it. I mean, the Warriors, the Warriors are going to get worse with Kevin Durant no matter what, by any measurable, because they won 73 games last year, you know, and came within a victory of, of winning the championship. So they're going to have to win 73 at least and win the championship to exceed what they did last year. Right. But the point is that in order to break into that elite, because you're going to have more and more, I think, superstars doing this. This is a model. Especially the guys who play together in the Olympics and get to know each other. Exactly. Exactly. That's how the, the James Wade Bosch thing came to be. Was that coming out of the 2010, I guess, was it 2010? Eight. 20, 2008 Olympics. Yeah. Excuse me. At Beijing. So if you're going to break through that, if, t- if players are not going to choose to take on each other in the way that, you know, Patrick Ewing chose to take on Michael Jordan in the mid-90s or the way that the Pacers chose to take on Jordan's Bulls or the Knicks or, you know, if they're going to team up that way, then the only way you break that cycle, the only way you penetrate that elite is to draft great players and keep them here yourself and make your own team a destination where and free agents would want to come. did. Because right. they drafted Wade. Right. And then between that and his friendship with LeBron, and then the obvious advantages that Miami offers for a million reasons. Right. Then they went out and got LeBron. 
And so I sit here thinking about the Sixers in that context. And this is going to sound sort of Yogi Berra-esque. I apologize in advance. You have to be elite before you can be elite. Right. No, that's right. That's Wait, You're 100% right about that. So they, they'll, they'll get better, mm-hmm. and then they'll get a little better. And maybe this practice facility that they're building ends up being a little bit of a wild card mm-hmm. and, and other various things. But it's, it's and, and Sam Hickey saw it. And even some of his critics, including some at this company, acknowledged this much about him, that he saw the level that you have to get to. Right. It's not like the NFL. It's not even like the National Hockey League. Right. Where you build up for a while over time. The, the level that you have to get to to win a championship in the NBA is so high that if you really want to get there, this is the kind of work that you have to do or else you're going to be satisfied, as a lot of people in this town now say they were mm-hmm. five or six years ago, whatever it was, when the Sixers were going out in the second round of the playoffs every year. Yeah, you're right. Look, that, that 2012 Sixers team was not drawing a big-name free agent. People were not clamoring to play with Andre Iguodala, Elton Brand, Evan Turner, Drew Holiday, Okay. If you're the Sixers, you have to hope right now that Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid, after in some time, become that kind of guy. I mean, look at it this way. Anthony Davis isn't even that guy yet. He's not. And he's acknowledged as the best young player in the NBA. And they're in New Orleans, for heaven's sake. And they're in New Orleans. They're in the party capital of the world. If, If there were one player that... Any, you know, I think if you polled 100 NBA GMs and coaches, if they could pick one player to start with right now, a franchise with, they'd pick Anthony Davis. But nobody's clamoring to play with him yet because he hasn't won anything yet. Okay, Now, that doesn't mean he's not going to be great, and it doesn't mean that he can't win something, but you've got to establish that first. And the way you do that is not by getting a bunch of competent players together and winning 40 to 45 games. It is finding a superstar. And what is the way to do that? You have to have you have to have you have to either draft that superstar or you have to draft enough young players that you become the kind of place that other superstars want to come to. For instance, you become the Boston Celtics in the mid 2000s who had so many first round draft picks and so many promising young players that they were able to make a couple of trades, to, and they ha- and they had Paul Pierce already. And 20-whatever was championships in their back and pocket. And 20 so championships so in their back pocket, so that they're able to make a couple big moves, and right. you get Ray Allen and Kevin Garnett to compliment Paul Pierce. You get a terrific young point guard at the time in Rajon Rondo, and because you have veteran leadership in Garnett and Pierce and Allen, they're able to kind of keep Rondo um, you know, on the straight and narrow, yeah. and they win a championship and get back to the finals in 2010. Or you draft LeBron James and go from being a laughingstock franchise in Cleveland to being a legitimate title contender. And then you get him back and are able to go to two finals and win a championship. Um, you know, or you're Miami and, or you're, you're Oklahoma city and you draft Kevin Durant and draft Russell Westbrook or you're my, as I said with Miami, you draft Wayne Wade and build veterans around him and win a championship. It's all coming out of the draft. It's not coming out of just, okay, the salary cap is now a bazillion dollars go spend a whole slew of money to bring in all these veteran guys. It's not about that because you can spend all the money you want. If you have the wrong kind of veteran guys, if you have the wrong kind of stars, you're not going to break into that elite level. You you can have, even I would argue, the right kind of veteran guys. And you still might not. Right. I'll take the Knicks as an example, who've made some relatively savvy signings here Mm -hmm. in Derrick Rose if he stays healthy for more than 30 seconds. and But Joachim Noah, I think, is the other name that's going around. I don't know whether, whether they've signed him yet. I'm not sure. But they've made some halfway decent moves for the first time in 15 years. The Rose, the, Rose like. si- the Rose trade is a smart trade in that they're only committed to him for one year. If he gets hurt again, okay, they say goodbye. It's a low-risk, high-reward move, which is good. That, that shows the Knicks are learning something. Um, but it, it doesn't change the fact that LeBron James, is sti- LeBron James is still looming in the East, and he just pulled off the greatest comeback in NBA Finals history against the best team, regular season team in NBA history. So he's still there. And the Knicks, everything could, the Knicks could have everything go right for them this season and get swept by the Cavaliers in the second round or the Eastern Conference final. There's going to be, we talked about how last year there were three, maybe four teams total in the NBA that were anywhere close to championship contention. The Thunder, the Spurs, the Warriors, and the Cavaliers. It's down to two now. It it really is. And they're only going to play each other twice in the regular season. That's true. I mean, and, and, you know, John Smallwood has written about this, and and I admire the consistency of his perspective, which is that he kind of takes the view that I assume it applies to all um, four major sports, but particularly with the NBA, that it's about entertainment first. 
And so he's he's written against the idea of Greg Popovich um, resting Tim Duncan and Manu Ginobili, you know, during the Spurs' only visit to Philadelphia because it's the one chance fans are going to see Duncan and Ginobili and see the Spurs best, and you should play them because it's you're you're supposed to be entertaining fans first and foremost. And his argument, you know, to an extent with respect to the Sixers is that you have an obligation to put a competent team on the floor, whether it wins a championship or not, because you have an obligation to be entertaining for the people who are buying tickets and paying cable bills to watch your games and all that stuff. And I understand that argument, and at least it's consistent. The problem is in the NBA, that sort of thinking is never going to win you a championship with certain exceptions. Um, And so, you know, Hinky to me, you know, made, made the hard choice. Now, the Sixers failed in my regard, and how they presented that choice to the public. They've been almost gleeful about what they were doing and how they were doing it and how much smarter they were going to be than everybody else. And I think that's that's rubbed me the wrong way. It's rubbed a lot of people the wrong yeah. way. But that doesn't have anything to do with Hinky himself. That has to do with, you know, some other people and who were involved the, in the business one, side of the operation. They got, as I've said before, one really nasty stroke of bad luck. Yeah. When Embiid got hurt. Yeah. Because well, they had Wiggins. If if Andrew if Embiid had gone top two and Wiggins was there at three, mm-hmm. who knows? Yeah, however you want to look at it, that they didn't get the number one pick that year or that Embiid got hurt. If they get the number one pick, they're taking Wiggins and nobody's complaining about the rebuild and how long it's taking. Now, if on the slight... Or I even would, the number two pick. Right. You know, now, on the slight, and I would, I would still qualify it as slight because we have not seen him play yet, on the slight chance that Joel Embiid becomes what people think he's going to be then maybe it all works out for them in the end if his foot stays together and he's able to play for a while at a, at a very high level. Um, but we can't count on that just yet. But it did net them, the process did net them Ben Simmons, and it, you know, just based on the one game last night, I think you have to come away saying, okay, you see what, you see what scouts and people who, who watched Simmons and played against him and coached against him saw and why they were so enamored of him. Um, you know, I think it's just going to be a matter of him getting reps and, and playing through cramping and getting in shape and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, in that small sample size, very, 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 very small, you know, it was encouraging to see what he did last night. And it's encouraging, I think, that they have, they, the Sixers, have this measure of flexibility and that Colangelo has not run. My, my fear so far has not come to pass, which is that they go, that, that Brian Colangelo and by proxy his father, Jerry, have kind of run screaming into the offseason saying we've got to get good right now whatever it takes and they end up making moves that kind of short circuit any chance the Sixers have of being great and and my fear which also has not been realized which was that the Colangelo's were brought in here to quiet the Sixers down instead of to make them a better basketball team yeah yeah and, and I have to th- be the guy at the back of the classroom who's you know being a nuisance to everybody else yeah no I think that's that I think that is part of why they were brought in I do I think it was you know, a matter of credibility. I think it was a matter of, uh, oh, okay, well, Jer- now that Jerry's here, um, you know, things that have happened with the with the Sixers won't get that out of hand, um, you know, again. So, you know, that that's true. I think that, that they were brought in in part to kind of quell the hinky revolution from a, from a PR standpoint. Um, but I also think that, They've been pleasantly surprising in that they haven't torn the whole thing down yet. Yep. Now, maybe they will, right. but it doesn't look like they're going to. And to, to bring things a little bit full circle, and then we're going to call up Mike Jensen and bring him on. There was some chatter at one point about the Sixers potentially making an offer to Derrick Rose, and I don't know how legitimate that was or not. As best I can tell, at least was not from a fake Twitter account. No. So no. it would have been fascinating to me had by whatever stroke of luck fate whatever rose come here Mm -hmm. had he come here because that would have brought full circle arguably the moment that started the whole thing which was rose blowing his acl the year the sixers beat the bulls in the playoffs right as the eighth seed which got them to within one win of the eastern conference finals which got them to andrew bynum which got them to that blowing up to hinky to all of this yeah it's it's interesting it's interesting only because they blew that team up thinking that well this is as far as we as we can go with this group, but that which is not a bad way of looking at it. They just they just completely messed up the rebuild. You know, they decided that Andrew Bynum was going to be the guy that you would build around, and for reasons of health and maturity, he never was that guy. You know, so 
you know, they waited a year to kind of begin what they should have begun uh, under Sam Hankey. So with that, let's get Mike Jensen on the phone here and, and chat with him a little bit. Mike, thanks for joining us. Uh, your thoughts on watching Ben Simmons uh, Monday night in that summer league game, that incredibly intense matchup between the Sixers and the Celtics, and uh, your thoughts on the way he played and what you think he can do uh, you know, as we move forward through this, uh, the, the preseason and the season. Yeah, I think I saw what everyone else saw, that, that if someone's open, they get the ball. And maybe they don't even know they're open, but they get the ball. Uh, wherever they are, and he and he wants the ball in his hands for that purpose. Uh, so that all makes sense. I also saw that, you know, everything we saw from his college days is still true, that uh, he can't shoot the ball yet. So that's going to be part of his <laughs> development for him to be an elite player in the NBA. Obviously, that part of his game has to develop. But, I mean, I mean, everyone in the world would want to play with a guy. What, what were your thoughts about uh, kind of the, the hesitation – People might have had, you know, people who follow college basketball, Sixers fans, whoever the case may be, about his quote-unquote intangibles. The idea of, hey, a kid who goes, if the kid's going to be the prospective number one pick in the draft and he plays a year of college basketball, then the team he plays for ought to be better than 19 and 14 and ought to make the NCAA tournament. And it's some kind of quasi-referendum on him that those things didn't happen, that that was a reason to be kind of wary of picking him. Yeah, I, I, I didn't buy it. Uh, I understood it, but I didn't buy it. Uh, and, and first of all, uh, you know, if he, my, my argument was if he had been at Duke and Ingram had been at LSU, nobody would have been debating for a heartbeat, you know, which guy should be should be taken. But it was it was the other way around. Uh, you know, a, a lesser program with a with a coach who's not even highly regarded within his own league. Uh, you know, Simmons went there for his own purposes, but, uh, you know, I I look back, honestly, I looked back the year before, you know, when he was at his prep school, uh, Monteverde in Florida, Mm -hmm. coached by Kevin Boyle, used to be in Jersey, and Kevin Boyle seemed to have, like, effervescent things to say about Simmons, and and seemed to be kind of quiet about D'Angelo Russell. So I, I looked at it, uh, you know, let's let's look a little further here. As far as uh, you know, them not making the tournament, there are good players on bad teams just all the time, including in the in the NBA. Mm-hmm. Mike, we talk a lot about Ben Simmons's deficiencies shooting, and I, I suppose I've seen this comparison get made more with point guards over the year who years who improve their shooting. Uh, over their four years in college, and it might be a different story when you're 6'10". But it would seem to me that uh, shooting is a relatively straightforward thing for Simmons to improve if he really wants to. Yeah, and he's obviously going to really want to. Uh, I mean, straightforward, I don't know. I mean, I think you can get to a certain level. I'm not sure that, you know, you can suddenly turn into Kyle Korver. Uh, but, I mean, the Sixers just signed Daryl Henderson. Look at his shooting percentages. Uh, he was, he was you know, a, a 20% three-point shooter when he came into the league, and now he's a 35% three-point shooter. Look at Kyle Lowry. I mean, there are just a million examples of those guys. So, I mean, you know, this is, again, one of these examples where we've got to say, how old is this guy again? Where is he in his development? He's been able to do these things at an elite level. Does he still have to do these other things at both ends of the court to be an elite player? A- absolutely. Is he going to do them next year? Absolutely not. Uh, you know, it's it's going to be an interesting uh, prog- progression for the guy, but it is an important part because, and I don't believe he's going to be, you know, point guard per se, uh, and that he's got to guard somebody. He's not going to guard the other team's point point guard. So they're going to figure those things out. But obviously, you know, you saw on on the telecast, Brett Brown said, you know, day one we tried to get the ball in his hands, and they did it. Uh, so they wanted to get the right people who are willing to get the ball in his hands. But then at that point, defenses. You know, if they're able to collapse, and he's not even going to consider the shot, that that's not going to work either in the long term. Sure. What What do you think of the uh, the Henderson signing? I like it. I think it's just this. You know, you sign a solid NBA guy for a couple of years, kind of like they did with the Bayless signing. Um, it seems like they're just trying to get like a professional roster together uh, around guys like Simmons and Embiid. You know, who they hope are going to turn into these incand- incandescent stars. Yeah, I, I liked it. Uh, I, I said a week ago maybe they could even overpay a bit for 
Fitzgerald Henderson. Well, I'm not even sure they had to overpay him. Uh, I agree with you. I mean, the, the last few years, it doesn't it didn't make sense to get those guys. I understand. If you're in tank mode, uh, you don't add Bayless and Henderson, and, and, and never mind in the locker room, but, but on the court, because they, they will actually win some games for you. I mean, I don't think Gerald Henderson necessarily turns into an all-star, but I mean, he is, he is when healthy, he's the best athlete on, on the court for the Sixers. Uh, he is, he is a, a top-level NBA athlete, streaky shooter, uh, but hard to guard, and he can defend others. So, yeah, I, I agree that he's someone uh, you want around Simmons. One of the debates I get in all the time with people who are on the opposite side of what um, – I shouldn't say that. Let me, let, me, let me rephrase that. People who really condemned Sam Hankey in the process often make the argument uh, or posit that if he had still been in place, there might be another – You know, how would we know this wouldn't be another season of tanking? You know, Because he had given no indication of doing anything other than trying to tank since the moment he got here. And my argument has always been, if you look at the structure of their offseason with the number of first-round picks they could have had, with the prospect of Embiid and Saric you know, joining the team you know, fully, that it would have been ridiculous for them to kick the ball, you know, kick the can down the road further. Um, where do you see that? You, you, you've, you and I have talked about this before. You've always had a really kind of nuanced look at what the Sixers were doing. Um, how do you view where they were heading into this offseason, and how do you view kind of where they're headed coming out of it assuming that you know yeah yeah and, and include in that like the prospect of a noel okafor deal somewhere in there too yeah which i still think is is job one priority one but i think it shows one of the i don't know flaws in the process is the right word but thinking that you know you could get the value these you thought you were going to get for these guys when you wanted to get it well whether Hickey was here or the Colangelo's are here, I think they're seeing that, you know, there's a, a, a discount for that, and, that, and that, that's an issue. So I, I, I think one of my issues with it early on was actually they didn't tank well enough for a couple of years. I think it took Sam figuring out that, geez, we keep getting the third pick. Uh, we need to get the first pick, and in order to do that, we can't even have a point guard on the roster. And so, it, you know, it went down even further until, you know, it wasn't until Schmidt's showed up last year so and and i got i mean most of the individual traits you're right you and i have talked a lot i got most of the individual traits including the, the noel trade uh you know the, the orlando trade was brilliant the sacramento trade was brilliant you can get rid of mcw I, I i got it uh but he was a weird fit coming in so mm-hmm. i have you're right i i'm sort of all over the board on on hinky uh but i agree with you that to think that Sam just wanted to tank forever until he got five superstars. I'm sh- I'm sure that wasn't uh, the the plan at all. And if they had been, you know, lucky is the wrong word because you make your own luck. But if they'd been a little luckier earlier, then maybe your th- this year wouldn't have been a, a tank year. But the fact is, it was, and they had made their own luck. Uh, but again, by literally winning too many games, they figured out that you know you can't have a rotation you can't have a second team uh and and you even your first team has to be questionable if you're going to be in in real tag mode so right uh you know at at at, at this point i i agree with you that i think it would i don't know but i think it would have moved forward uh in a similar vein under hank yeah i think you're right but i i think you make a great point about the market value for some of these pieces that, you know, they thought they were going to get X back for a guy like Noel or Okafor, um, and they weren't going to get that. Um, I think that's particularly true with respect to Okafor, and I'd love to get your reaction to this. My theory has become now that I I would be, part of me would be really surprised. I think they're going to move either Noel or Okafor. I think the reason they're probably going to end up moving Noel, if they're going to move one of them before the season begins, my theory is it's probably going to be Noel. And I would be against that because I think he is, he's the more promising player and fits better defensively and all that. But I think the reason that he would be moved first is because of what happened with Okafor off the court last year, the fight in Boston, the speeding ticket, all that stuff. In a way, Jaleel Okafor has to play for the Sixers to kind of rebuild some of the value, um, some of his value, that some of that has been lost by what happened off the court last year. And while... 
you can make an argument that if he plays and doesn't play as much and doesn't put up the kind of numbers on the court that he did last year that his value would go down, I would argue that's a risk the Sixers have to take because they have to rebuild. He kind of has to show he's a good kid again in a weird way. Does that make sense? Yeah, well, it does make sense, but I'll, I'll throw it to the on the court. If, if he could defend and rebound, I think they'd live with what was happening off the court. I think mm. they've, they've lived with it in the past. I think it all depends on you know your value on the court. And I think he's, you know, he proved to be a tough fit. I mean, everyone saw that, you know, there's the skill. It's on the ball, and there's a good chance he's going to score, which is, you know, a really nice skill in the NBA. But there's these other skills that were hurting him as, as a plus-minus player. So I'm with you that Noel sort of has the, uh, you know, skill at the other end of the court. So they're, they're, they're mishmash. I'm not sure, you know, if they had good deals to, to deal them both. They wouldn't take this massive chance on Embiid and, and deal them both, but I don't think that there's necessarily this value. And also, I think this time period, whether it was Hinky or, or Colangelo, I think this time period right now is crucial because, you know, there's this short window where, you know, all of a sudden Embiid and then Simmons after him is going to be a free agent themselves. Right. So either you're building around these guys or they're gone. And it's the same, you know, Noel's coming up on it already next year. So, you know, those things have to factor in. So, you know, this whole thing, there's just no room for error. About Noel and and Embiid, Mike, uh, it's Jonathan here. I I just, one of the things that I've heard again and again and again, uh, that the biggest knock on Embiid is not so much his inability to play defense in that he might step it up and start playing defense. You mean Embiid or Okafor? Sorry, Okafor. The biggest knock on Okafor, thank you, is, boy, that's okay. (laughs) Well, you can you can tape but over the big, it. No, yeah. it's it's. I won't tape over it. Eh. It's just you know. The, I think we all you know drive ourselves well, batty with this stuff. Yeah. <laughs> um, the biggest knock on Okafor is not so much his lack of defense that he might learn that at some point, but that he can't play in a fast-paced offense. And that what kind of a tempo you're going to set with your big men, whether you go for Noel who can run the floor a little better or Embiid who's more of a slower-paced guy, that that's as much of a factor here uh, in terms of who might ultimately get dealt. Yeah, I mean, I'll agree with you to an extent that you're right, that he's not a perfect fit. But I'll argue that sometimes in a fast-paced offense, you know, if he's the last guy down the court, that, that, that's okay because you can't get five guys clogging up the lane on, on a fast break. So I, I would live with that if he was a really good defender and rebounder and was starting those fast breaks. I think that would be, that would be just fine, especially when you've got these other interesting pieces. So I'm still, you know, I am – Sorry, I covered John Cheney for 10 years. I started on the defensive end as a guy, and I watched Okafor, I swear, like every possession last year. And, and, and I was good with a pick, believe me. I was good with a pick. Uh, but watched to see if the defense was coming around. And I'm not with you that, uh, you know, defense, defense is a wanted skill. So I thought that was a real red flag. And, again, I, I think that's one of the big reasons why his value isn't as big as we might have expected it is the rest of the league can see, you know, what everyone in Philadelphia saw. I agree. It, about. I, I agree. It's a wanted skill. I just would have hoped that he might've gotten the want in his brain a little bit at some point. I want to ask you, by the way, Mike, about Langston Galloway, who's a guy that you've said on a few occasions in the last couple of weeks would look awfully good in the Sixers uniform. Uh, and you've watched him a lot, not only at St. Joe's, but obviously in the NBA, you've talked to him in his time with the Knicks. What do you make of him? Yeah, I mean, I wrote a long piece on Galloway and how, uh, to the surprise of me, including myself, you know, he made his way into the NBA. I, I was up there in January. And first, when I was saying he was a free agent, I wasn't necessarily even saying for the Sixers. I was just saying he's a good part of somebody's rotation. Well, now, as all these dominoes have fallen, uh, the Sixers still might have a need for that kind of guy in their rotation because, basically, Galloway, he was a good fit for the triangle that Jackson brought to the Knicks because... I mean, he was a catch-and-shoot guy. He was in the right place guy, and he could—he was a, a great move without the ball guy. And he, and he can uh, both shoot and and he can really defend. Well, I mean, all those skills are kind of what you're looking in this, you know, Ben Simmons offense. It's not going to be a triangle at all, I don't think. Uh, you know, no reason to think that. But still, those skills apply, and obviously, that was Bayless. They signed Rodriguez, who you know was a he was in the NBA before, and he was a backup. There's no reason to think as an older guy he's going to be anything but right. that again. Uh, so Galloway can play a little point, but more of the two, it seems to me they still have 
a need for one more of those those guys. And Galloway originally got an offer from the Knicks, two point seven million. Uh, uh, what, do they call a tender offer these days? You know, for uh, so that he was unrestricted. So he was a restricted free agent. They could match anything. But when they just signed Jennings, uh, Brandon Jennings, they renounced that, and he's on the open market. And like Henderson. You know, he's not going to cost you a ton, and you're not going to have to sign him for five years. So I think the Knicks still like him if they can afford him, but uh, there's no reason you don't want Langston Galloway in the team as well. No, I I agree with that 100%. Let's let's shift gears for a sec here, Can Mike. Yeah, one more basketball question before right. we start talking about Bill Lyon. Mike, you and I have talked about this in the newsroom a couple of times when you've been over, and I want to take a minute about it on the show because I do think it's really cool, and that is Kyle Lowry going to the Olympics. Um, you and I both remember when he was coming into Villanova and Sonny Hill was warning Jay Wright about how much of a head case Lowry was going to be. And he has, over the years, not only been a great basketball player, but he's grown up, he's matured, and I just think it's really cool that he's going to get to go to Rio. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a huge deal. Uh, he's... Uh, I think that the third guy from the Philadelphia Catholic League, uh, Michael Brooks, Mike Bantam, uh, to be named a U.S. Olympian. Brooks didn't go as the 80 boycott. And and if you had guessed that Kyle Lowry, you know, when he was leaving Villanova after his sophomore year, would end up being an Olympian, uh, you know, nah, nobody was taking that that money. So it's it's a pretty big deal that he has uh, matured into the the elite point guard that he is in the NBA. And again, that he's another one of those guys who who both learn to contain himself, and learn, learn to shoot. And that's when he became elite. And we saw in the playoffs this year, he had like some epically bad games and then followed them with like epically good games. I mean, it was, it was a wild ride for him in, in, the, in the postseason. But, uh, uh, yeah, pretty, pretty big deal for Lowry. And let me just throw it this way, too. Let me just spin this. You know, I think Philadelphia is a civic on whether Deion Waiter should come home. Uh, and, and the civic re- recommend, referendum was, was no, 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 we don't, we don't need waiters. Well, I'll just throw it to you this way, that if there's a chance that waiters can follow the Kyle Lowry career path, and he is pretty far along on that path in terms of not being the guy he once was, if you looked at Oklahoma games, then, you know, it's a great chance. I mean, a massive chance. I'm not arguing with that, that, uh, that, if it's wrong, it could be epically wrong. But if it's right, you might actually be getting the guy on the cheap in terms of, you know, uh, he'd be willing to come to Philadelphia when, you know, the these other guys just were not at the stage of the Sixers' development. So I, I'll I agree. Just throw that in. I, I think you're right, Mike. I mean, I've you know you know Dion Keith Pompey, who covers the Sixers for us, knows him very well. I've gotten to know him a little bit. I think that's the, you know he's the kind of guy who, you know, sometimes just guys get it later in life. And I also feel like, you know, there are guys who come from, and, and Waiters has had a lot of um, really, you know, awful things happen in his life, you know, family members and friends who have been killed, um, you know, things like that. Yeah. And, and when you when you have things like that happen, I always feel like guys, It's I kind of felt this way about Allen Iverson, that, you know, w- when you do certain things to get out of that environment and then get yourself to a place where you're making millions of dollars, there's going to be a point where you're going to ask yourself, why would I change what I've done to get to this to this point now that I'm at this point? You know, being a certain way got me here and got me out of that. It extricated me out of that situation. So why would I change what I'm doing? I always felt like Iverson felt that way. And then there are guys like Lowry and I think waiters to a certain extent who realize, okay, now that I'm at this level, I've got to, you know, change the way I do things. Um, and I, I, I hold out this hope that he would be that kind of that guy. It's a roundabout way of agreeing with you, I think. Yeah, and I agree with you on both ends of that, that, that clearly Iverson thought that way, and clearly Lowry saw this other path. And I really don't know Waiters personally to know, you know, where he is. And danger is like, you know, when you get the, the max contract is, well, I was right, I've done it. Right. No reason to change now, obviously. Uh, but that, that's not the way necessarily it, it has to, to play out. Um, and, you know, this this thing still involves chances, what the, what the Sixers are trying right. to do. I mean, I just said, you know, bet it all on, on Embiid. Well, you know, betting on waiters is even a bigger, is even a 
you know, rescue event. So over the last five weeks, um, and, and you and I have, have gone back and forth on text messages and, and things like that, um, the Inquirer and Philly.com have been running this, this five-part series um, about, you know, written by and about someone who you and I have known for a long time, a very close number of people here have, Bill Lyon and his battle with Alzheimer's disease. I'm, I'm wondering if you could put into perspective, you, you obviously worked with him for a long time, um, you, you know, know him well. Uh, if you could put into perspective for the listening audience um, what it's been like to to read about his fight and what he's gone through and what he's endured, um, you know, in, in the context not only of the way people know him, have come to know him over the years as a, you know, a terrific sports columnist, maybe the best in Philadelphia history, um, but also just as a, as a human being, as a man. Yeah, and we can st- start right there that uh, I think most of us who work closely with Bill uh, actually consider him a, a, a better man. It almost sounds cliche. He's, you know, the best writer and a better man. But in Bill's case, it was, you know, it's just it's just fact. And, and on the one hand, it is just completely gut-wrenching to read these magnificent pieces that Bill is writing, knowing, you know, the effort that he's putting into it um, and, and what his life is like now, it's, it's just like a, a member of your family going through these things, except Bill is able to really explain it in, in a, a, amazing detail. Uh, and it, it on, on the one hand, you know, some of us, obviously we, we knew about it a little earlier, uh, you and I, knew he'd been diagnosed with this had, you know, we, we seen him, he'd, he'd explained where he was. So that was the initial shock to the system. Uh, and you know, I, I've, I've, I've seen him, you know, just, you know, I, I want to say, let me put it this way a few times since he's, he's been diagnosed or, or in, in the last couple of years, each time you, you can tell a little difference, uh, in, in Bill and, and for, I mean, anybody who, uh, everybody, if you haven't, if you missed a single part of this series, uh, you, sh- you shouldn't, because I'm also in the camp that, you know, Bill is one of these wordsmiths that is just from the heavens, and he's still able to do it, and he's still able to write about other things. I mean, he will, you know, occasionally send me a piece just to, hey, can you, you wrote about Carly Lloyd, can you just sort of give a read on this piece I wrote on Carly Lloyd? Yeah, okay, Bill, and it's, you know, it's pitch perfect. Uh, and so, how he's able to do these things, um, you know, again, it, it's, it's emotional uh, for, for all of us to, to, to read them uh, because Bill was one of these guys who was also just the absolute salt of the earth mm-hmm. uh, where, you know, he, you know, he, 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 he didn't even have like these high and mighty tastes, uh, <laughs> you know, like, joke that we were, you know, we'd be at the final four in New Orleans. Come on, Bill, let's go get a good meal. Nah, you know, the chance at the hotel is just fine. (laughs) Come on, Bill. (laughs) You could maybe get him out for, for, for a lunch. He's just, you know, very, very basic guy, uh, who who cared about, you know, certain things and cares about still to this day. I mean, his, his, his family and his work, uh, and, and the words he puts on the page. Uh, so, it, it's it's special stuff. I don't th- I don't know that you know anyone in the country has put words to it in quite the way he has because because Bill's a poet. He was always a sports poet, and uh, he's he's put his poetry to this this terrible battle. I, I'm curious. I I grew up reading him, and when I got started in the business, I both consciously and unconsciously kind of tried to ape his writing style which you know happens to young writers all the time as you're trying to find your your voice and the way to say things um i'm curious you're you're 100 right about everything you said as a person but i'm curious if you ever found yourself doing that at any stage of your life not even with necessarily with him but with anybody else i mean there are certain writers i feel like who that is truer of than others um, and I found it particularly true of him. It, did, did you find that too? Yeah. I mean, when I was younger, I mean, I, I was, 
I would stupidly try. Let's, let's, suddenly I was trying to write like Vonnegut, you know, like, <laughs> oh, that went well, uh, you know, and, and some of those things. So I, I don't remember having like, uh, I, I, I think I stole from too many people to have had to have one, one person in terms of like, oh, I see why this works. Not stealing their words is, is their approach. And Bill was one of these guys who, you know, I'm 54 years old now. I still think about Bill's approach as like, sometimes it's like this, this required some, some drama here. Something happened here. I think that's was one of the things that Bill was great was he'd get to someplace and he understood that, uh, you know, there was, you know, whether there was some majesty to it, if it was a really big event, but I mean, he wasn't, he he wasn't going to under underplay things when Mm -hmm. there was in fact drama right in front of him. He, he could do that. So, uh, he he is still a, a very important touchstone for me on on how to how to approach things. I, but I never tried to write words the way Bill uh, did, just because uh, I'm not a good enough wordsmith to do it. I tried, and it went badly. <laughs> it went really badly. I can remember when I you know in college writing for the LaSalle student paper. I I don't look at that stuff, and I'm sure everybody who is in the business and goes back and looks at their old stuff feels this way. But I really feel this way. Like, Oh my God, that looks like, you know, that reads like a bad parody of what Bill Lyon would be. And it's, it's really <laughs> cringeworthy in a lot of, a lot of ways. Go yeah, ahead, but, but, but a worthwhile exercise at the same time. And, <laughs> and, uh, at, at the college paper. Yeah. Cause it's not too many people around the country. You know, I worked in California. We, we, uh, both worked in New York for a bit I mean, Bill has an entirely different style. So, I mean, you might have picked the toughest man on the planet to actually try to imitate, right? But on the other hand, you you pick the the best guy on the planet uh, because you know he's uh, he's he's a giving man who, separate from his own style, which he never tried to to force on anybody else. He 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 was great, just you know, talking journalism. Mm-hmm. He's always been. He still teaches a class and. You know, Tommy Rowan, you know, you guys work with, uh, was in his class. First time I met Tommy, I went to, went to, uh, Bill's class at, uh, Delco Community College. Yeah. Tommy was a star student. (laughs) It's pretty amazing. Go ahead, John. So I'm 32 now. And I don't think somehow I've ever met Bill. I met Frank Dolson once. I think he was at the, I think it was at the big five 50th anniversary banquet. Mike, he, Mike and Mike, he came at, he came to the palestra for that. Um, I don't think I've ever met Bill, and I've always wanted to. Well, he was—I mean, he's an incredibly gracious person. I've never seen him. I, you know, maybe Mike has. I've never seen him really like cross with anybody, even particularly I've, people in, the, got, in yeah. the who wanted to get into journalism or sports writing. I've gotten that impression from far. I've, I've wanted for literally twelve years now to tell him how much I appreciated. One particular column he wrote, and I, I, I was a, it was my junior year at Penn, and it was the football game against Harvard, and I came home, and maybe I read it on philly.com the next morning, or there was an inquirer sitting in the dorm or something, or at the Daily Pennsylvanian's offices, I don't remember, but it was Bill Lyon had written a column about the Penn-Harvard game uh, in 2004, and I st- I'm reading it now in our archives, and I still to this day remember almost every word of it. And I remember thinking, what on earth was he doing at Franklin Field? This was <laughs> such a small time relative. I mean, look, Penn football, obviously, and that was back when they were able to draw fifteen to 20,000 people for mm-hmm. the Harvard game, and they had college game day and all that. But he wasn't, Mike Jensen, he wasn't above writing stuff like that. He wasn't the kind of person who would say, I'm only going to cover the Phillies and the Eagles or the Flyers or the Sixers. He would go out and cover stuff like this. No, he understood that, that a, a change of pace was always necessary, whether it was writing about the Cardinal era football coach or uh, a Widener basketball player. And like you, uh, you know, people re- read those words and never forgot them. Uh, and so, yeah, and, and, and I think, honestly, that's, I think Mike would agree that's part of the job. Because uh, because Mike does it very well. I mean, you you have to show all your gears, and Bill was as good as anybody at that. But uh, you know, when he did that, when he was at the Palestra, uh, it was a very big deal. 
Uh, but it was a bigger deal the next day when 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 the column came out. Yeah. Uh, and you, and you read it's like, wow, uh, yeah. you know, he he captured something that uh, you wish you saw. Uh, it was there. It was there for the for the scene. Uh, but but Bill would see it, and because his his eyes were always open. Yeah, he always he, open. When I was in college at LaSalle, and and, and Mike, we appreciate you coming on. Um, you might remember this in. Um, in the 1995-96 basketball season, I went to LaSalle, and they were dreadful that year. They were 6-24, and and there was one game in particular where they played Villanova at the Spectrum, and Villanova won the game 90-50. to And there, was, there were rumors going around, there was scuttlebutt, that Speedy Morris, the LaSalle coach, was going to lose his job at the end of the season uh, because things had gotten so bad so quickly. And there were circumstances that we could, you know, you, we could get into. Um, that it contributed to that. But the point is that that night, Bill wrote a column basically saying that it would be the easiest thing in the world for LaSalle to, to, um, to fire Speedy now, you know, while the floodwaters are kind of lapping at his feet. I think he used that phrase in the, in the column. And he said it would be far more, it would be far, it would reflect far better on the university and it would be the right move from a basketball standpoint to allow, you know, give Speedy an extension, allow him to finish this, see what he can do. And as it turned out, from what I understand from talking to people at the university, that the column literally saved Speedy's job. That there had been discussions that, hey, are we going to move on from, from Speedy or not? And they read the col- people read the column and were like, well, now that Bill Lyon has written that we should keep Speedy Morris, how can we possibly fire him? Which spoke to the esteem that Bill was held you know, around the city and, you know, and that, okay, if he says this, how can we possibly go against him? Um, which I think speaks exactly to what you're talking about, kind of the, the, the level of respect that he was held, not only you know, amongst the people who he worked with, but the people who he covered uh, you know, in a large, to a large respect. Yeah, because there's always a tone in a, in a Bill Lyon column was in do the right thing. Uh, you know, he would, he would, you know, that's the way he lived his life, and he celebrated those that didn't, and... You know, and, and he could throw a high hard one at, at, at somebody. And, uh, you know, I'm sure Andy Reid didn't love all his Cap Nandy uh, columns early on. Uh, you know, Bill had a, had a way of letting people know that ah, this, this is a little, little different. But I think that, you know, that's, that, that does say something for sure. And it also, obviously, in that particular circumstance, let LaSalle know Bill Lyon wasn't going to kill him for, for uh, keeping – speedy for another year what are you doing uh and that's that's the other part where these institutions are always trying to figure out where you know what 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 future will be from a uh perception standpoint but i I agree with you that bill had uh an ability to, to shape that perception mike thanks for taking the time man we appreciate it you bet uh enjoyed it thank you both all right we'll have you in the studio one of these days it's beautiful in here you should really see it Oh, where is it? Uh, it's an it's an old editor's office here in the at eight hundred one East Market. Ah, eight hundred one East Market. I got to get there. <laughs> <laughs> Take care, Mike. Thanks. Appreciate it. Th- thanks very much. That that was fun. That was fun. You know, I, and and uh, you know, I don't mind saying this, and and you know, people people give me you know mild amount of grief, mild amounts of grief over it, and I don't care. Um, I'm proud. Of, I've known Bill almost 21 years. He was my mentor, has been my mentor. Um, and I'll tell the story very quickly. I've told it a billion times and I don't care. I'm telling it anyway. Um, I wrote him a letter in the summer of 1995 when I was a sophomore at LaSalle, just asking him for advice about breaking into the business. And I included in the note that this was back when you actually didn't, you didn't send emails. You actually wrote letters. So I typed it out on, I had an electronic typewriter, um, wrote it out longhand, typed it out and sent it to the inquirer and included a self-addressed stamped envelope in the in the letter saying, you know, if you get a chance, please scribble something on a piece of paper and send it back to this address. Um, and he never wrote me back. Instead, he looked up my phone number in directory assistance and called my house. Now, I happened to be working the day that he called. Um, I was working as a shorter cook in a deli in northeast Philadelphia at the time. And it was a Sunday afternoon, so my dad calls the deli and gets me on the phone and says, Mike, you'll never believe who just called here looking for you. Um, And it was Bill. And so I called him back, 
And uh, he said, if you're not busy Thursday, why don't you come with me to uh, shadow me at the Phillies-Dodgers game Thursday night? And this was 1995. This was the game that, uh, uh, this was the first time Hideo Nomo, who was a total sensation in Major League Baseball that year, as really the first prominent Japanese pitcher, um, the first time he was going to pitch in Philadelphia. And I shadowed Bill at the game, went down to the clubhouse. He's introducing me to Ray Dittinger, to Sam Donnellan, to Phil Sheridan, uh, to Darren Dalton, to Larry Boa, to Jim Fergosi. Um, I'm watching, I'm sitting next to him in the cafeteria. I meet Harry Callis. I meet Richie Ashburn. I watch the game with him. I watch how he does the job. And from that point on, we had this, you know, relationship, this friendship, um, where I was able to kind of bounce ideas and writing off of him and we spent time together. And, um, I can honestly say that, uh, I've never been prouder to tell people that, um, to speak about my connection with him than I have over these last five weeks to read, um, what he's been going through and how he's handled it uh, has been incredible. And I'll just leave it at that. It's, it's remarkable to me. And I think one of, you know, I've respected him for a long time as so many have, but it's still, you know, we all deal with lost pain, suffering, personal injury, whatever in a million ways. It says a lot about who he is. They said, you know what? Now, obviously, I'm sure he called Bill Merrimo or any number of other people over here and said, hey, I want to write a column about this. Mm-hmm. And we all said, sure, absolutely. Yeah. But that that's what he wanted to do. Yeah. That's his way through it. I mean, yeah. and... And his, his doctor wrote a lovely column this yeah. past Sunday. Yeah. Bill Lyon is how, my patient. Bill yeah. Lyon is my hero. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he's not the only one when it comes to the hero Sure. Part. So um, anyway, we'll wrap that up for this week. Um, thanks very much for listening. Murph should be back next week. Um, and we can, we can deal with whatever happens between now and then, then. So thanks for listening.